you turn to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel 8, much like chapter 7, is a flashback. Uh, we'll again see this phrase uh, in the, the reign of King Belshazzar. So we're moving back a couple of decades to a time that was earlier. And so to some degree, this helps us understand how Daniel could be so accurate in interpreting the Belshazzar's dream uh, because he had some of this information given to him by the Lord uh, directly and very precisely so that he would understand these things. And so tonight we take the first 14 verses uh, and the study that kind of looks at this ram, this goat, and this little horn. And you'll see these continuing pieces of thematic element um, that are also prophetic and they speak forth. And there is some incredible prophetic history, again, spoken in this chapter, spoken well in advance. Again, I remind you uh, that the Dead Sea Scrolls contain several uh, nearly complete copies of the book of Daniel, uh, two of those at least to 200 BC. So we had them uh, well before the events of Antiochus Epiphanes, who would come along uh, in 180 BC. So we have this information, which will specifically speak into the lives of some uh, rulers from the Seleucid Greek Empire uh, that are going to pop up, and it becomes very clear who they're talking about. And so as you look at the chronological order of the book of Daniel, it is a little bit interesting uh, that as you, as you look at them, chapters 1, 2, and three, one, two, 3, and 4 are all in chronological order. Then you have to stick 7 and 8 in front of chapter 5, and then go back to 9, and then 6 is after chapter 9, and, 11 and tw- nine, or 10, 11, and 12 really are in chronological order at the end. And there's a reason for that. There's some additional information because remember that we've now switched over from this portion that was written in Aramaic, the language of the exile in Babylon. It's now being written in Hebrew. So everything that is written from here forward is speaking to the Hebrew people once they return to the land. That will be their language in the land. And so it it makes a tremendous amount of sense when you look at it from that perspective. And so let's pick up here in verse 1, Daniel chapter 8. And again, we see in the third year, we already saw in the first year, but now we're in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. And so he's actually referencing his first dream. He's reminding us that this is the second time that he's seen some of this information. And so he's had one dream, that dream was interpreted. We're actually going to get some help in interpreting this one from heaven, and we'll catch that in our next study. I saw in the vision, and so it happened while I was looking, that I was at Sushan. Now, Sushan is actually in modern-day Iran, very close to the mountain range that uh, begins the, the upslope into the mountains where we would also find Mount Ararat in Turkey. And so this is across the plain. It's, it's on the very edge of the Mesopotamian plain. It is the exit point for a number of rivers. And so here's this palatial city uh, that is still in existence, by the way. Tons of ruins there. And so to the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision that I was by the river Ulai. Now the river Ulai, we'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, is a river that is still in, in that region today. It hasn't moved much, and the city of Sushan, or the citadel, still exists in the same place in its ancient context. And then I lifted up my eyes, and I saw, 
And there standing beside the river was a ram, which had two horns. And the horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. And so again, remember that we've already had these things discerned, that these are kings, these are kingdoms. Uh, We've been told that very directly. And we've seen the animals associated with these particular kings and kingdoms before. And so they're fairly easy to discern, uh, at least a starting point for these kings and kingdoms. And then I saw a ram pushing westward and northward and southward so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand. But he did according to his will and became great." And so we begin this little journey, uh, a prophetic history lesson, if you will. If you remember the time of this vision, uh, in this chapter is the third year of the reign of of King Belshazzar. So this is now uh, 551 BC. It's 12 years before the fall of Babylon. Uh, It's about, so at that time, Daniel would have been near 70 years old. We see him at the end of his life in his 80s. And so this is roughly 15 years earlier. Uh, In 539 BC, uh, Daniel interpreted the other dream. And so um, we have these pieces of the future that were told to him over a great deal of time. And then he had a chance to mature in the way he looked at the world that he lived in. Uh, And there's a ton for us to learn and so as you, as you look at this, this chapter begins with the complete switch. We've had a partial switch up to now. We now have the complete switch from Aramaic back to Hebrew. And so it indicates to us that there is an audience, an intended audience for this particular part uh, that is being spoken of here. And it's extremely prophetic and applies primarily to Israel. And the reason we know that is the Jews are going to be the the people that will suffer the greatest persecution ultimately from these world kingdoms that are going to come come into light. Uh, And so when we look at this, we'll see chapter 7 was kind of a broad sweep of history. Chapter 8 deals with very specific parts of the second and the third kingdoms that pop up. And it's going to focus on another little horn. We've already seen the first mention of the Antichrist. And now we see yet another little horn. And we'll dive into this a little bit towards the end of the study and realize that there are actually two little horns that are being spoken of here. One is a type of the other. And, And so... As we look at this, really what Daniel has happened to him is is something that we have lots of movies about, Uh, time travel. Daniel becomes a traveler in time, if you will. And so he's taken back, he's projected forward then a couple of hundred years to where he sees things that are still in the future to his time, uh, but very much in the distant past to us, but they would be future to him. And and he gets a glimpse of these things that are going to have Uh, world impact, things that you and I would look at and it becomes very clear looking back at it in hindsight uh, exactly what happened. And notice that he, Daniel, had a vision that was after the one that had already appeared. And so those previously recorded visions that we saw back in chapter 7. And so when we look at this, Ezekiel had a very, very similar experience in chapters 8 through 10 of the book of Ezekiel. And so Daniel first has the vision of a ram. He, He says, I I see this one that appears to me. And he had another one recorded back in chapter 7. And I think this was done for two reasons. It was done prophetically and it was also done as a literary agent. In other words, he's looking at it to make sure that there's some consistency when he talks about a ram or he talks about a goat. He talks about a horn that we understand that these things were intended to send a message. 
Much like the book of Revelation, one of the things that's interesting when you talk about language, linguistics itself, syntax, the things that we use, um, the context of words that we use, um, words change meaning over time, amen? If I say to you tonight, you know, man, that was really bomb, none of you are going to go looking under your seats for dynamite. You're going you're gonna to know that was, you know, it was just awesome, it was cool, it was something that was good. Now, that's because the word bomb means something different today than it did during World War II. But interestingly enough, symbols kind of transcend time. So what's happening here is he's using something that if you spoke about the ram and you spoke about the goat and you spoke about the horn and then you define what those things are as kings and kingdoms and there's only one ram and there's only one goat and there's these series of horns those things will transcend time so if i used horn today without the context of this ancient prophetic uh, word that comes from the lord we can make it mean all kinds of things but because we have the context from ancient times this particular use of this word transcends the time that has transpired between when it was written uh, almost 2,700 years ago and our day and time today. We can look at it in its proper context. If I took the words out of context and gave you no context to them, they may mean something completely different. But because they're used this way, symbolically, they mean the same thing that they meant then. It's not something different. It means exactly what Daniel saw. And so the symbols actually are better than simply using words, provided we are given a way to interpret them, which we are in this particular passage. And so in the first 12 verses, we have this vision of a ram and the goat. We then have some heavenly interpretation that's coming next. And then the, the full interpretation of this vision comes after that. Now, if you remember, Belshazzar's father, Nabonidus, had a, had a policy, if you will, that was fairly uh, lenient and friendly towards Cyrus the Persian or the Mede. Uh, you have these two groups of people. You have the Medes and the Persians. The Persians were extremely strong. And as we look at the history of the world, and especially the region, the region that we're talking about, uh, which was first Babylon, Babylon, Macedonia, which became Greece, and the area that is the area of the Medes, the Persians, and the Chaldeans, and also the Zoroastrians. Um, this particular region of the world maintained its symbols of who they were for about 700 years. And so each of the nations were known by these particular symbols for a very, very long extended period of time. And so uh, as these kings rise up, their progeny rise up. In other words, their children. Um, you, you have this consistency of everybody would have known who was the ram and who was the goat, uh, who, who was the horn and who was not. And so Daniel is, is transported in time, not physically, but he's transported in his mind to this capital city in Persia, uh, which is the, the city of Sushan, specifically to the palace there, uh, the fortress of Susa, if you look at a map and you go to the Persian Gulf, uh, which would be at the, at the mouth of the Persian Gulf where the Euphrates River enters into it today in modern-day Iraq. Uh, if you were to travel up about 120 miles to the north, so you're heading towards Turkey, uh, and then ha ha take off about a 230 miles to the east, I'd put you right at the base of the mountains that are actually the, the mountains of the center uh, of modern-day Iran. 
And so when you begin to look at the history that's involved here, uh, we can again thank the father of Western history, uh, Herodotus, because he writes of these cultures very extensively. And so you can pick up the history, the book called The Histories, or simply Histories, uh, written by Herodotus, uh, written in 440 BC, by the way. This is an ancient manuscript that is considered to be the basis uh, of Near Eastern history, really Western history as well, uh, and really established the genre, if you will, and the study of history. And so the historical records in it, most of the verifiable facts that we have about the history of the Medes, the Persians, the, the Romans to some degree even, uh, but certainly the Greeks come from Herodotus. Uh, if you've seen the movie uh, The 300 or its previous incarnation, the movie Sparta, uh, that's written about the Battle of Thermopylae. Um, this is the Greeks coming to meet the Persians. This vastly outnumbered group that is led by uh, great General Leonidas comes to this uh, pa- pass in the mountains and as they're transiting through Uh, from Macedonia, which is modern-day Greece, uh, come across the Isthmus. Uh, They jump across the place that's called the Hellenspont, which is actually not quite uh, all the way to the Bosphorus, which is the entrance to the Caspian, or the Black Sea, excuse me, uh, between the Caspian and the Black Sea. But you, you have this group of soldiers that finally comes, and they move from Sparta to meet the Persians. We know a ton about the Persians, And so we know that they were a mighty fighting force. Uh, We know that in this case, uh, in 480 BC, Xerxes amasses this huge army and a navy. He sends approximately 7,000 men uh, to to go against these 300 soldiers, which was probably more like 1,000, but this very small contingent of Greek soldiers. And so we can check the history of these things because we have a reference point Um, through Herodotus as he writes. And so Persia appears, their symbol that they traveled with, their symbol that they used was constantly a ram. It was their zodiacal uh, animal that they were associated with on the Persian calendar. Uh, It was equivalent to the Syrian uh, Capricorn or the, you know, this goat that Uh, was wandering around in the Middle East as well. And so we we have a lot of historical reference. And so as we look at these things, um, kind of the the crazy thing is their leaders have happened to them exactly what we find in this particular passage of Scripture. Um, Cyrus is going to become known as great. Um, We're also going to meet another person who is going to be called great, and he is going to be greater than the great Cyrus. And so continuing, verse 5, notice what it says. And I was considering, and suddenly a male goat came from the west. Now we know these are kings, we know there are kingdoms, and we know what area of the world they're from, and we know what the animals represent as far as the, the various kings and kingdoms. And suddenly a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. In other words, he's moving so fast that he doesn't put his feet down in any one place for very long. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. And then he came to the ram. So the ram is Persia. The goat is Greece. That had two horns. 
which I had seen standing beside the river, and it ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram, and he was moved with rage against him, and he attacked the ram and broke his two horns. And again, we know the horns are the kings. We know the animals are the kingdoms. And there was no power in the ram to withstand him. And so the order of world events, we know them really well. This is not a mystery. So we have Babylon, followed by Media Persia, followed by Greece. And interestingly enough, the animals listed are the animals that those kings and kingdoms were known by. There's no power in the ram to withstand him. The him would be this male goat that's risen up. But he cast him down to the ground and trampled him. And there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. And therefore the male goat grew to be very great. But when he became strong, a large horn was broken. And in its place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. And so the first great conqueror is pretty clearly Cyrus II or Cyrus the Persian. And so here comes Cyrus the Persian. Um, He is coming from the area of modern day Iran and he's heading towards, guess which direction, the exact direction of what we would call Greece today, but then Macedonia, the great Macedonian king. And during this exact time, interestingly enough, um, how many of you know which sea is directly adjacent to Greece? Um, It's known as the Aegean Sea, amen? Anybody know what Aegean means? Goat. It's the Sea of Goats. And so it actually, the sea is actually known as the Goat Sea. And in fact, the capital city was called Ajay, which is actually also Goat. Um, the son of Alexander the Great was known as Aegeus, and so this was a very common name uh, for Greece itself. And in this context, normally a goat has two horns, but in this case it does not. Um, so the goat is Greece, its horn is none other than Alexander the Great. And so Alexander the Great, as we see this vision uh, of this goat, Uh, becomes this conqueror who comes running at Persia and there's no way for him to be stopped. Uh, He he becomes the greatest ruler and in fact in his short-lived life of 32 years, Alexander the Great conquers so much territory that for a very long time people actually questioned the great historian Herodotus because it seemed impossible that he could conquer all of the lands that he himself gave himself credit for, which was basically all of the Middle East, all the way down uh, to, and, and even to some degree, a fairly large chunk uh, of what we would call Egypt today. But all of the Middle East, all of Greece, all of Turkey, all of Syria, all of Iraq, all of Iran, all the way to India. And so to put that into perspective for you, uh, if you were to look at it on a map, uh, this great son of Alexander the Great, uh, Aegeus, was known as the son of a goat. And Alexander's conquests are monumental. So he starts, he leaves from Pella, 
Uh, he crosses across the Helen's Pond, which is that narrow portion uh, that's in the top left of this particular map. Uh, he fights his first battle at Granicus. Uh, he, he defeats the Persians there. And then notice where he ends up. And if you can see the numbers on the, these are the years that he's traveling. So he starts in 334 BC. And by the time he gets done, he's making his way back in, in, a, in just about 13 years. He has conquered pretty much the known inhabited world at that time. And he does so with lightning speed. The reason he defeats these, these particular kings and kingdoms so quickly is the speed with which his troops travel. So notice what our passage says. There's going to be a great horn that comes up from the center of the horns of the goat. It is going to move so that it does not touch the ground and that it will become great, so great that its name will be great. And that explains to us exactly what we see in the life of Alexander the Great. He conquers the entire known world like a giant goat. He basically takes his infantry, uh, which is swollen to 30,000 soldiers. He has 5,000 cavalry. He, he, he crushes, literally crushes the Persian army. He's outnumbered 10 to 1 and still destroys them. He moves through their ranks so fast that he turns around and attacks them from their undefended rear. Uh, by 331 BC, he's on the banks of the Tigris River. So he has moved all the way from what we would call modern day Greece. He has moved all the way to modern day Iran and Iraq, and he has conquered every bit of territory between those two places. So more than 1,500 miles of territory, and he's done so with a fairly small force of 30,000 people. Uh, and all along the way, he loses not a single battle. Uh, he just sweeps through the land, and despite the, the immense numbers of the Persian forces, um, their very superior military equipment, uh, including, by the way, war elephants. One of the things that we, we look at today, you know, the, the, the team, you know, the side that has the best armor basically wins, or in our case, the best aircraft. Uh, but during that time, uh, imagine you're a foot soldier and, and you come up to a, a, a group of 500 elephants that are effectively armored uh, and you're moving towards them with a sword, a shield and a spear. Uh, you, you would think that that's not a, a recipe for victory, uh, but instead it not only was a recipe for victory, um, but it remains really in the study of war perhaps the greatest military conquest ever in the history of humanity lightning speed the macedonian army extremely disciplined and won the day and so there's some interesting prophetic precision that occurs here and so as you look at this map as alexander travels now imagine that in the far right side that is the himalayas so Alexander conquers all the way from Greece to the Himalayas. So the northern part of India, um, all the way up into what we would today call Nepal and Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan and into those uh, areas of the world that we would call, as we would call them today, all along the Caspian Sea, uh, nearly up to the Aral Sea, the Black Sea, and certainly everything on the Mediterranean that was ha inhabited, including all the way down into Egypt. 
And so this is an extremely swift battle that's being described here uh, with very great precision. The height of his power in 323 BC, Greece breaks off the prominent horn, which is Alexander. He's broken off. At the age of 33, he dies. Very suddenly, uh, it is believed that he choked on his own vomit in a drunken stupor uh, because of some poison that was given uh, by one of his generals, Cassander, uh, along with the complications of malaria. And so Alexander dies. Uh, His early demise, uh, one could say, is the prophetic precision of this passage. Because if he'd been allowed to, to garner any more support or any more territory, chances are there would have never been a Rome. He would have taken over every bit of the known world eventually. Uh, In his place, notice our passage says that four prominent or notable horns grew up towards the four winds. We've seen those guys before. Those were his four principal generals. And to show you how precise this passage is, they were given territories. Those ordinal directions are listed. And as you look at them, uh, Lysimachus, which is the first of these four kings or these four generals, uh, ruled Thrace and Bithynia. Cassander ruled Macedonia and Greece itself. Uh, Seleucus ruled Syria and Babylonia and went all the way eastward towards India. And Ptolemy ruled Egypt. And so we know the names, but there was a fifth one that rose up. His name was Antigonus. And Antigonus rose up, but he was a political ruler. And it looked like there was going to be five. Antigonus went on a conquest. Uh, He was resoundedly defeated most of the time. He was a political ruler. So when he went to war, he never, ever gained a victory throughout all of his time, through some dozen years or so of attempting to gain a major battle or a major victory. He never got one. So by the time he dies at age 80, uh, his, his reign was left to his son Demetrius II, who would reign for the next 10 years. And with the exception of a short period of time when they finally defeated the Gauls uh, up in what we would call modern-day Europe, um, Antigonus was not only not a heroic figure, he wasn't a successful military ruler, he was essentially dis- deposed by his own people, which would leave exactly the number of generals that your Bible says existed in those four horns. And so you have the main horn, which is broken off, which is what your passage says. You have the four horns that rise up. And so had Antigonus become that fifth ruler, you could throw your Bible away. There would have been a fifth horn and we would, have, we would then have to go, ah, no, there, here's this guy. He was a general as well and here's the, the place that he ruled but he never was given a territory. He was never given a throne. He was never given a part of the the Grecian military, if you will, or the Macedonian military. And so your Bible specifically names the four horns, names the major horn that's broken off and dies suddenly. In other words, it's snapped off. It's just gone, just like that. And out of one of them, it says, verse nine, came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. And it grew up to the host of heaven and cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. And he even exalted himself as the prince of the host. 
And by him daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth down to the ground, and he did all of this and prospered. And so now comes another little horn. And this is where so many Bible scholars confuse these two little horns and try and end up making a person who was real, who existed at the time, who's long dead, into the actual Antichrist. And they confuse the words of Jesus with the words of Daniel. And so this little horn uh, of the goat shouldn't be confused with the little horn of the fourth beast that we saw um, already in chapter 7. And the reason being, we'll look at this in a minute, there are some very significant differences Um, Just as we saw the prophetic um, precision with which was spoken of the generals that would uh, be Alexander's four generals and that there was not a fifth, that the fifth one uh, never had a, a place that he ruled from, nor did he have any victories. So we will see that this little horn is very different from the little horn that we already know uh, is going to rise up in the last days that we call the Antichrist. Uh, And so who is this guy Um, Out of the second horn, one of Alexander's generals, Seleucus is his name, came another horn. Uh, His name was Antiochus IV Epiphanes. There were four of them. There was Antiochus I, second, third. This is the fourth. And so Antiochus Epiphanes rises up. He starts small, grows into power. He's in the south. Anybody know what the land that was inherited by the children of Israel was called when they entered into captivity? It was called Goshen. Now that land means beautiful land, does it not? Um, So this land that's being referenced here, the glorious land, the beautiful land, same Hebrew word as Goshen. And so this beautiful land, this is where this ruler would rise. Oddly enough, there was a horn that came out of the Seleucid Empire, one of the horns, one of the generals of Alexander the Great. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes IV. He was actually one of 26 kings who ruled Syria uh, from 175 Uh, to 164 he's ruling from Antioch and so his name became Antiochus Epiphanes or opposer or withstander Uh, and so as Antiochus uh, rises up um, he pronounces himself to be God and he is given charge to rule over the area that was called at that time uh, the area of Palestine or Judea and so here's this Greek ruler who's in the land of Judea or the land of Palestine uh, several centuries uh, before all these things happen Daniel witnesses what's going to happen and so there's two little horns here um, and, and so we need to decide which one it is the little horn of the goat should not be confused with that little horn of the fourth beast because we're given some details so that we can know which one's which um, Antiochus was absolutely a tyrant He absolutely did desecrate the temple. And in fact, most of you know that December 25th is actually, was Hanukkah, amen? So rather than it being Christmas Day, it was actually legitimately um, the actual holiday we know as Hanukkah. Hanukkah was actually the Feast of Dedication. It was when the Jews under the Maccabeans finally restored the temple after it was defiled by Antiochus Epiphanes. 
And so th- this holiday that is kind of confused sometimes with Christmas um, actually comes from the rule of this man. Uh, and so to help you with this, uh, I got a little chart for you. So you can actually look at it. So those of you that are on that side, you can look at that one. Um, but if you notice, there's actually some very, there are some very stark differences. Um, the Antichrist, whom we're really going to meet in chapter 11, uh, is, it's very clear he comes out of the Roman Empire. Where does this horn come from? It comes out of the Grecian Empire. So it's not even the same empire. It's not the same time period. They are hundreds of years apart. Um, it also has a very clear understanding that this is actually the 11th horn in Daniel chapter 11. It's actually the fifth horn in, in Daniel chapters 8, 7, and 8, uh, if you want to look at it that way. One persecutes God's people for 42 months. The other one persecutes God's people for just about six years. So one is three and a half and one is six years. So it's very clear they're not the same person. You have Alexander and Greece on one side and you have the revived Roman Empire on the other. And so one is the actual Antichrist himself, the real one, which is future, and one is Antiochus Epiphanes or the person that is probably uh, most often confused by those who like to deny the literal fulfillment of these things applying to Israel. Uh, this is the guy that they say, well, the Antiochus Epiphanes is responsible for the, the desecration of the temple. And so the abomination that Jesus spoke of had to be this guy. And, and I think we can look at a few things that would uh, tell us that that's not actually the case. How did Antiochus, would, this would be a good question for you, um, because he's supposed to trample the sanctuary eventually. How does he do that? How does he throw to earth some of the faithful Jews who are, in this case, the starry hosts that are in our, uh, our passage that we've already read? Because some of them are going to be thrown to the ground, the stars of heaven or the host of heaven. Remember that God looked at his people. They were the apple of his eye. They were his chosen people. And so the association of God's people with the, with the host of heaven uh, was pretty clear that he was speaking of at least some of the Jews. Um, Israel had absolutely by this by this time gone back and forth with all kinds of rulers some of them good most of them not but at the time of Antioch's epiphanies oddly enough there was actually a godly high priest that high priest was Onias III Um, his office began he began to reign in 175 BC Uh, he was assassinated in 171 so four years later um, and after this, Antiochus per- pursues this evil policy of trying se- to secure the, the control of the Jewish people by controlling the high priest. So if you have a theocracy, a government of God, and you want to control that government of God, and there's one person that's responsible to go into one place one time a year to deal with the sins of the entirety of all the people, if you can control that one guy, guess what you can control? You can control the people. And so he begins to set up, in essence, a, a kind of a coalition to try and make it look like he's being friends with the high priest. And he brings pressure on the religious hierarchy. Yeah, they have to surrender their religious loyalties uh, in interest to, to the conformity to Greek culture. Uh, He says, well, we're not going to actually practice idolatry. We're going to kind of let you keep a little bit of Judaism. This is, by the way, exactly how the Romans made peace with the Jews as well. They allowed them to continue to worship, but they oppressed everything else about their Jewish lives. And so 
in Antioch's case, in the books of First and Second Maccabees, so if you happen to have a Bible uh, that contains the Apocrypha or, or those other writings that are, you know, sometimes people will go, what are these other books that are in Mac, like First and Second Maccabees? Um, that actually records the history uh, of this time period under the Maccabean Revolt. And so Antiochus sets himself up as ruler. Eventually, he breaks a statue of Zeus and puts it in the holy place. He then slaughters pigs and other animals inside there. He has every copy of the Torah that he can find or the first five books of Moses burned. And so uh, after he's been in power for a while, Antiochus arrogantly enters the sanctuary himself. And guess who becomes the high priest? It's Antiochus. And eventually that's going to cost him his life. And so there in that sacred space, the Jewish people had finally had enough. They said, this isn't going to happen. And so it begins what would uh, culminate and be called for a period of almost 300 years, uh, the Maccabean Revolt. And so if you travel to Israel with us, one of the coins that you will see are the coins of the Maccabeans. They actually minted their own coins, and they are the ones that are most prized by Jewish people. And you'll find a lot of Jewish people wearing a Maccabean drachma around their neck in some type of a gold setting. It was the Maccabees that came up against Antiochus Epiphanes, as well as it was the Maccabees who in 73 AD would go to the top of Masada and their 900 Maccabeans would just say, we're not surrendering to Rome. The Roman 10th Legion surrounds uh, Masada. Uh, and at the end, ultimately, they commit mass suicide rather than be taken captive. And so to this very day, when an IDF soldier, an Israeli Defense Force soldier, takes their oath of office, they do it on the top of Masada, and they say, never again. They, they will never surrender. And so this group is very, very well known for opposing this anti-God uh, character that was known as Antiochus Epiphanes, and ultimately Antiochus Epiphanes dies. Uh, he was around for a period of time. Uh, by the time he he is he's killed, uh, it ultimately after he desecrates the temple, uh, he fades from existence, and so the holy place is then. Uh, revitalized it's cleansed and then verse 13 we pick this up and then i heard the holy one speaking and another holy one said that to be certain that the one who was speaking how long will this vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot how long is it going to last so we're given a time that the sanctuary would be defiled and that the Jewish people would be trampled underfoot. Anybody want to take a guess historically how long that was? It was exactly six years or 2,300 days, whichever you want to look at. So we were given the time that Antiochus Epiphanes would reign and cause havoc in Jerusalem. And that is exactly how long it took for the Jewish people to finally overthrow him. He is killed and done away with. And though this passage confuses a lot of people because they say, well, look, the, the, the temple was desecrated. Uh, I want you to notice how Jesus put it. Jesus in Matthew 24 said there in verse 15, therefore, when you see 
the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, why would Jesus say that if it had already happened 200 years previously? Jesus is referencing something that has not yet happened because the whole context of the Olivet Discourse is the last days. That's how it begins. What will it be when the end comes? That's the question the disciples asked. And he begins by saying, and as it was in the days of Noah, so it shall be when the Son of Man comes. And so therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, so Antiochus Epiphanes was absolutely a type of the Antichrist, but he was not the Antichrist. He was a little horn, but he was not the little horn. That is a different person. Then Jesus goes on to say, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on his housetop not go down or take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant in those days and who are nursing babies in those days. And the reason that Jesus could say that is because it was still yet future in Jesus' time. So it could not have possibly been looking back towards something that already happened because then he would have simply referenced Antiochus Epiphanes. He would have said, remember when this happened? But he didn't. He said, when you see something like what happened during the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes. So now when you read what the book of Revelation has to say about that time, you understand that the image that the beast sets up in the last days is going to be similar. Except the whole world's going to see it. The whole world did not see Antiochus Epiphanes. A few people did, especially the Jews, and they were trampled underfoot which resulted in the Maccabean revolt. And so when you read First and Second Maccabees, that historical portion of it, you can go, that's exactly what happened. So there on December 25th of 65 BC, the menorah is finally relit. The, the sanctuary is cleansed. And if you work backwards 2,300 days towards the restoration date, you arrive at September 6th of 171 BC. And it was that time that Onias III was assassinated. That's when Antiochus took uh, his office. By mid-September of 171, Lysimachus, the brother of the corrupt high priest, the priest Menelius, desecrates the temple, steals the sacred vessels, and he's killed. All that happened in a period of six years. And so your Bible gave us a little bit of a preview of what's going to happen when the beast that rises up out of the sea, that comes out of the sea of humanity, the man that we call the Antichrist is one world ruler who allows himself to be worshiped and then demands himself ultimately to be worshiped in the very last days. It is the Antichrist that you can look back and go, he's gonna do some of the same things as Antiochus Epiphanes did. And so you have two horns, they are not the same person, and all of this history that's mixed in with it, we can go back and check it because this happens to be part of our ancient history uh, that is well documented. And we can look at the kings, we can look at the kingdoms, we can look at the rulers and where they're from, which ordinal directions they ruled from. Every single ordinal direction, the north, south, east, and west that are mentioned there are all the exact directions that those rulers ruled in and from. Every one of them spent a period of time and then they faded off the scene 
Uh, and certainly you can look at the history of, of Alexander the Great and see this in, incredible goat that's leaping all over what we would call the Middle East today, conquered all of it. No one could stop him. And had he not died, he would have conquered the rest of the world. And so God's word speaks to us. And though it's not a complete history of everything that happened during those hundreds of years of ancient history, it is sufficient that when we look at what we do know about ancient history, thanks to the Babylonians, thanks to the Medes, thanks to the Persians, uh, thanks to the Greeks, thanks to the Romans, ultimately for preserving much of this history, uh, we can see that God told us of these things well in advance of when they would happen so that we could know that the things that Daniel was speaking, uh, we ought to be listening to because God is faithful to keep his word. And so everything that we read that has yet to be fulfilled is just on the list of God's things to do. Amen? And what's on God's to-do list, God is going to get done. The only question is when. And so when Jesus said, when you see, when you see the abomination of desolation, uh, you, you better get ready. Now, the good part is this. Because we believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, uh, we're not going to be here for that part. We'll, we'll be in heaven. Uh, the church is going to get taken home. But it's also the reason that we should get busy in 2020 about our Father's business, seeing to it that people know the truth of the gospel so that they can believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Amen? So they don't have to go through it either. God is gracious to give us this much truth uh, in, in historical things so that we can look back on what happened in the past and be absolutely certain that what he says about the future is going to come to pass exactly the way he says it is. Amen? Why don't you stand and we'll pray together. I'll bring some of the pastors back up front. One of the beauties of studying the prophetic portions of scripture is they give us uh, a complete understanding that God has always been in control. You know, sometimes we look at our world and we see things like what happened today and we just go, man, how, how can, you know, how can we believe that God's in control when stuff like this happens? Well, well God allowed Antiochus Epiphanes to rise too. He actually told us he was going to come. Uh, God allowed the Greeks and the Romans and the Medes and the Persians God allowed the Assyrians and the Babylonians. He's allowed all kinds of things to happen in our world. But he's never done so because he's mean-spirited and angry. He's done so because he is exactly who he says he is. He's a gracious God and he's unwilling that any should perish. And so he tells us these things so that when we see them, that makes us understand that he's telling the truth. That's not something we shouldn't be guessing about whether, you know, well, you know, I think I kind of sort of believe in God. When I read the prophetic word of God, I'm going, man, the Lord told us all these things and they came to pass exactly the way he said they would. So trust him, amen? Father, thank you for tonight. We thank you for Daniel. Lord, a man whose uh, unwavering courage in the face of adversity causes us to be strengthened spiritually. And we pray that you would just Give us a heart for those around us that don't know you. Lord, that we would cling to the truth of your word when the world says it's foolishness, it's, it's vain. Lord, to even be a Christian, we pray that you'd remind us to remind them of passages like this where you showed us the world's history well in advance of the events that would occur. 
And so, God, we thank you for your word. We, we pray that you would just uh, strengthen us tonight. God, it's a tough world that we live in. It's getting harder and harder. It's not getting easier to represent you. And so we pray that you'd strengthen us to that end. Bless us as your people, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.